Season two of the Dead Air Podcast. It's now Dead Air AM. It's a nice, quiet, and warm radio talking about horror movies. Yeah, that's right, Wes. We are. <laughs> and it's really, it's really nice to be here with you. Oh yes, yeah, great to be here too. Great to be here. Ooh, bitter cold out. Bitter cold out. I uh, hope our listeners are keeping warm. After the last forty episodes, we've been talking a lot about uh, format shifts, and so you've all wanted warmer and safer horror radio. So we're going to provide it for you. Our uh, good friends, Patron Set of Plagues, have decided to follow suit. They're now a easy listening Christian band. So their new intro, I think you'll enjoy, is the hot new track off their album God's Light. It's uh, called, titled simply, uh, Kiss Your Date on the Back of the Hand and Escort Her Home Safely. Uh, They'll be playing at the St. Joseph's Church in uh, Petawawa, which I think that weekend is also the uh, bake sale. So you can uh, have yourself a coffee and some of the wonderful muffins and cookies that uh, the parents are going to be putting together there, and then you can listen to a nice wholesome show. Uh, Today... uh, we're going to be doing uh, the Groovy Ghoulies, which I think is a nice, warm, safe, and fun little horror escapade for the kids. Well, I think that some of our listeners might be a little bit shocked by that. So I just like to say, you know, take the little ones out of the room. You know, their little eyes, their little ears, maybe a little young for the Groovy Ghoulies. It's true, yeah. yeah. Dracula is very, very sexual in that. <laughs> you tried. You did so good. I was watching your levels, and they flatlined. <laughs> That's great. Do they have like a flashing alarm that goes off when they peak on an AM radio program? Uh, no. no. Um, <laughs> Do guns drop from the ceilings and just slaughter them all? I think like when AM radio people go up a certain tone, like people just burst through the doors and shut them right down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They pull the plug and just like the whole place goes dark. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the people are left with like their vocal cords torn out so they can never speak again. It's actually quite... You know what, Lily? Honestly, it's really graphic. That's that's fine. And, you know, they. I'm glad that the little ones have been taken out of the room for that. And they probably have like more AM radio hosts just waiting in the wings, standby, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, do you have a corduroy jacket with leather elbow patches? You're all set for AM radio. Yeah, and if the technician hasn't succumbed to catatonia already from doing absolutely nothing he might be able to just plug himself in right there yeah yeah <laughs> uh it's like them wild and crazy guys at the cbc oh oh my god i know sometimes their material i think is just a little too raw it's like being in a mosh pit <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and if you don't add that in as our new intro, I will shoot myself in the temple. I'll put the whole thing in if you want. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's really, it's beautiful, Wes. It is beautiful, oh, like like beautiful. it is outside today. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ooh, ooh, hot cocoa, hot cocoa. <laughs> <sighs> so death. You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. Well. 
What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Nipe here with always... Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be doing the 1990 horror film. They like to call it a, a thriller. Yeah, psychological Psychological thriller. thriller, but that is just Nehru jacket speak for we can't call it a horror movie because it's too fancy. Movie Flatliners. I almost got lost in the intro there. Yeah, it's totally one of my favorite films, and... It's one that I wanted to rewatch since it first came out. It was a rental we picked up, me and my mom, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And it just sort of fell by the wayside, like all those movies tend to do. But it, I kept being reminded of it because it has themes that I revisit a lot in my life and had before even the film came out of death, dying, the afterlife, things like that. Mm-hmm. I love medical shows, medical trauma. So it has a lot of elements in films that I really enjoy. And of course, the actors in it. How can you escape these actors? Julie Roberts, Kiefer Sutherland, uh, William Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Oliver Platt. Oliver Platt. Crazy yeah. bullying. The themes that are present in this are very today. It's very now. It absolutely works yeah. now. Super timeless film when you think about it, but one that people don't really talk about. So when I saw Certainly it not. for $2, I had to pick it up. Oh, yeah. That's a steal. Now, I'd like to explain why we took an unannounced and unexpected hiatus, and more importantly, why I've tied Wes up and made him watch Flatliners. (laughs) We had been planning on doing uh, Basket Case and Vampire Lovers in in the works, but I sort of pushed them aside to bring Flatliners, which was on our list for, I was hoping to do it around Halloween, Mm because it does have a little Halloween theme, Yeah. but I ended up putting it right here. On October 3rd, my mother found out that she had a brain tumor, and this was a result of a rapidly spreading small cell lung cancer. We received that diagnosis in the same breath that we received her prognosis on January 3rd. That prognosis was, sadly, a matter of hours to a week left of her life, and in reality, we ended up having 20 hours after the doctors told us what was really going on. My mother passed away January 3rd at 5.20 a.m., and I was proud and very blessed to be with her and my family. There was no way that we could know that rushing to the hospital on New Year's Eve, an hour after midnight, that we'd be leaving there without her. It all happened really fast, and it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Though I do think that we've gotten through this, as she had a really good life, and we're a really close family, and she surrounded us with love all of our lives, so we were able to surround my mother at the end of hers. So now when people ask if I had a good holiday, I don't really know what to say, because no, I didn't at all. It was a terrible holiday. But then I kind of did because we were all able to be together, even if it was for the most sad reason imaginable. And it may seem like a little bit heartless to some people that I'm choosing to pick a movie about death that's very clearly about death and the afterlife and coming back. And it's a very, very sad film that way, especially with the um, Julie Roberts character, what she has, what she sees and goes through in this film. And just the prospect of death scares a lot of people. What is makes this a horror film? But it is a film that me and my mom really liked. And it was one of the last films that we talked about over the phone because we did talk about film a lot. And she was one of the key players in my being a horror fan, as we all know. I've mentioned it lots of times. And I've mentioned it in a lot of interviews even before we were on the show. But... When I picked it up, of course, I watched it, and she called while I was watching it, and I paused it, and we had like an hour conversation about this film, death, the afterlife, and this was sometime around Halloween this year, so it was after we knew that she had had this brain tumor, and we were starting to slowly get news of 
the extent of her cancer. Yeah. And I've talked about death with my mom all of her life, all of my life. So 40 years. When I was like really little, we used to visit graveyards and clean them up. That was like one of the things we did on weekends as a family. <laughs> so death wasn't like a taboo subject whatsoever. And it continues to not be a taboo subject for me. So I don't feel awkward or strange talking about death or cancer or death in film, death in life, mm-hmm. because it's just a part of my everyday. And it's inescapable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, after my father died, uh, I was very uh, eager to talk about him happily mm-hmm. and not speak about him in a hushed tone or be afraid to bring him up because I thought, well, the worst thing ever is to to maybe treat it like maybe he wasn't even alive. Like, oh, I don't want to bring up dad because, oh, it might upset somebody or I could get upset. And sometimes when I do bring up my dad, I get upset. And But, but I think that's a good feeling and I, I certainly don't want to shy away from that. So, yeah, that is uh, why we were uh, taking a bit of a break from the show, just because of all that happening. And Yeah, we weren't breaking while the medical tests were being done and things like that, no. because I don't treat it as something that does entirely take over my life. But now when no. I look back, I realize I hadn't updated the Horror Writers Association new releases mm-hmm. yeah. since basically the day we found out about the brain tumor yeah so maybe there were some things that i put to the wayside the show wasn't one Which of them is completely understandable i mean sometimes when you are faced with a family tragedy and you have a whole bunch of typically speaking like creative people like uh especially like i know about you is like you're a woman that spins a lot of plates you're doing your your writing you have a full-time job you do this podcast you guest on other podcasts occasionally you have a mini cast i mean do photography uh, you do and photography I clean my house relentlessly. Relentlessly, it's it's psychotic how much she cleans her house, ladies and gentlemen. But um, I think that it, it when all of that happens, you start to realize that maybe I could just slow down for five seconds and deal with this, and you'll keep some things. We kept the show going, yeah. And I knew that when when I found out about the news, I instantaneously was like, the show is not going anywhere. We can stop doing the show for a bit, and then when everything's settled, we can get back into it. There were a couple breaks as I traveled, but that would have been happening anyway around the holidays and stuff like that. Yeah, and we and we did some uh, a little bit of magic here and there to make sure that we didn't lose uh, too many weeks because we could do double episodes and yeah, all kinds of Which stuff. Which worked like out that. really well, and that's part of like me and Wes have a good dialogue and we have a good relationship, and the show is like an easy thing for us to do because we like doing it. Same with talking about death and tragedy in a family and mm-hmm. medical problems. Mm-hmm. If you have a good communication and everyone talks openly and mm-hmm. there is learning going on and everyone's really open, it's a lot easier to handle all those things. It certainly is. Yeah. yeah. So I think during her treatment, as short as it was, because it all did happen really fast, yeah. there was always that positivity and not like a blind positivity either, but an educated positivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's good for us to bring it up on the show because the show is very much about us and very much about our experiences with horror. And your mother introduced you or led to a lot of these movies with you together. And it was something you guys both did. And, and you know, that's one of the things that I remind 
parents of, if there's parents listening, I was like, things that you can do with your kids that might seem completely nothing, it, it could become incredibly important. It could become the whole world to your kids. Like sitting down and watching a movie. Oh, that's not, that's nothing big. But it could become everything. And that was what it was with my dad. Me and my dad watched movies constantly. Not always horror because I didn't like jumpy movies. Well, I saw a jumpy movie. I don't know about that one. Uh, but my dad was didn't exactly have the thickest skin when it came to horror. But I mean, you know, he would go to the smoke shop all the time and buy me issues of Fango. He would definitely sit through monster movies with me at any time I wanted to. And uh, he certainly was like encouraging of like my love of movies and one of and we used to watch tons of stuff together and and he always used to let me watch r-rated movies and you know maybe when i was too young to watch them like alien or even even like non-horror stuff like like conan the barbarian you know and and if there was a warning a warning in front of the movie and i'll never forget every time i see r-rated the voice of my father (laughs) instantly comes like comes into my head because it's like the following has violence, coarse language, and nudity. He would always turn to me and be like, oh, it's going to be a good one, Wesley. It's going to be a good one. It's got all the good stuff in it. <laughs> I'm going to start saying that every time I watch a movie. Because that, well, there's not really warnings in front of the movies we watch. Because we know what we're getting into. Yeah, it's true. But yeah, but it like, was on TV. That was kind of back in the day when it was like things were on television and stuff like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's like now when I just see the R-rated thing, I'm just like, ah, oh, violence, coarse language, nudity. It's all the good stuff. He's right. He's absolutely right. He was right about a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it makes absolute sense for us to, for anyone looking forward to us doing those other movies that are coming, but I think it was a little bit more important to do this one. I feel oddly for some people who are into, you know, horror or gore or anything, and then a tragedy strikes and they really step back from a lot of that, Mm -hmm. or they they rethink it as if it was a bad decision to begin with, Mm -hmm. or if it wasn't really them, or if they feel that... They're insulting the people who are undergoing tragedy or loved ones they've lost by enjoying these things still. Yeah. Uh, horror is very much about death. And death is something that scares a lot of people. Yeah. It's part of that fear that we're you know, pl- playing with. And we're trying to understand and experience these things without undergoing those turmoils by watching these films. Yeah. And maybe it has... You know, it's that line between being steeled and ready for these things and desensitized to them. I think not to say that horror movies really helped me get through a lot of bad things in life, including this, but it definitely helps me deal afterward because mm-hmm. it's something that is very me and I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't adverse to watching any sort of the things mm-hmm. that I normally would watch because that's my comfort zone and that's my happy place. But then once I was feeling a little more myself, I wanted to get back to the show, let alone watching movies, which I've been doing all week. But we had kind of planned to take you in another week. We were going to take another week just to make you, you look, you, one of the things that, that not a lot of people talk about is how busy the business of death is, mm. how much work at closing people's affairs up going through all their stuff. When your father passed away, I think it was two weeks after, before we had time to have a pint and yeah. go for dinner it, or And something. it was just, it's just, it's a whirlwind. It's so much planning and, and paper signing and, and, you know, finding things. Where did dad keep this? Whoa, where's this? And uh, yeah, and yeah, even, even to not even do the show, even to like sit down with a friend and so you could be like, so what happened? 
I because it's just yeah. and, and it's not that I wasn't telling you or anybody. It was just this is what I'm doing for a little while, guys. Yeah, you didn't have time. Yeah. yeah. And and it's and so when you finally got back uh home, you just you said that you just felt like you got hit by a truck. And and I was taking that as you're just exhausted. Yeah. It's been so much. And then and then funerals themselves. I mean, you're seeing people. It's such a like in one hand you're in a daze because it's just like so many people and oh my god this is the final moments and and then it's but it's like this weird if it was any other circumstance i always felt like look at all these people like across generations different sides of the family friends you haven't seen in years friends yeah. of the family you haven't seen in years if this was any other uh gathering this would be awesome look at all these people but then, but, and then, and then everyone always kind of has that same sentiment. Why do we only all get together like this when someone dies? No, it's so true. And it's something that we all say to each other at funerals. And then, but... and then we just go back to our own lives because we have jobs and yeah. significant others and babies and all kinds of things. Or so, jobs. Or jobs. I know. But some other people have decided to procreate. It can just be overwhelming. And when you're finally done, you can just be like, okay, I need to just veg out a little bit and recollect myself. And so you wanted to go uh, to, it would have been like two or three weeks. Like, yeah. And, and I was like, I was like, yep, you know, whatever. The show, Saturday, one Saturday, give me a text, I'll be over. And I was surprised that you wanted to do it earlier. I think that getting back to work and throughout it all, even the first few days when she was just in hospital, we were all very adamant about, you know, get some food in your system, make sure you eat something, whether you want to or not, you need to fuel this machine that is going to have to run pretty relentlessly in high gear for days and God knows how long. And it turned out being, you know, weeks because of funeral arrangements. But during all of that time, really trying to sleep and trying to get a decent sleep, no matter how upset, even if um, you need to take some painkillers or something to help like normal painkillers, not crazy amounts of opiates to drug yourself but you know something to make sure that you eat and sleep normally and fuel this machine that you're going to need to run ragged for a little while and not letting your emotions really get the best of you yeah where you need to keep yourself busy and Mm -hmm. i think that if there's any advice for anyone going through uh cancer treatment with a family member or going through it themselves it's just take care of yourself right so me and my family were all very, very big on that. We've always been very big on that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't weird or new for us to try and keep ourselves sane by yeah. keeping ourselves fairly regular. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful. So getting back to work was a little rough to start with, of course, but it's not much different than anyone taking you know, 11 days off of work unexpectedly or expectedly. When you come back, you're bound to be a little out of sorts. Yeah. But getting back to work and keeping some sort of like normal lifestyle regimen for mm-hmm. me. Uh, I think that made a world of difference because I almost didn't expect myself to feel ready to record. But, yeah. you know, three days in, I was like itching to record because yeah. that's part of my normal. Yeah. And uh, and I was certainly happy to answer the call. So, so Flatliners. So Flatliners. It's a very uh, uh, serious as the intro is. It's a very serious movie. Today is a good day to record a podcast (laughs) uh yeah 
the idea of this movie is about a group of young doctors, young, hip, sexy, sexy doctors, rich, rich, they stylish, stylish, so many vests and bow ties and long coats, amazing hair. Kiefer Thutherland looks like fucking John Constantine just coming off of Lost Boys. When you you pointed that out, that was like exactly it too. He does, he would have been a perfect shoe in for it. Oh, like, like honestly, especially, uh, the way that the sets were directed, him walking down these long uh, alleyways, this movie was directed by Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher, uh, uh, comic book fans definitely know the infamous director who handled things like Batman Forever and <laughs> and arguably the worst Batman movie ever made, Batman and Robin. Uh, I don't think it's as bad as people think it is. But um, so the whole thing is art directed within an inch of its life, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But I mean, you're talking about a hospital that looks like it was like carved out of like just like wood and marble and like so picturesque there's pe- they're standing around cadavers in a place that looks like a fucking museum i still compare a lot of film sets to this film uh, subconsciously and once i rewatched it in october i was like oh my god this is exactly what i'm holding that high bar of set direction to a lot of time uh, especially with apartments there's even jokes made in the film about Kiefer Sutherland's character's gorgeous apartment which is pretty gorgeous oh yeah like molded walls and stuff like that yeah no the the cove molding and i don't know wainscoting and just everything's painted white it's so and a lot of daylight natural light is used in the home scenes like outside of the school where there's Mm. a lot of artificial light but um the photography in this film is amazing and it matches these sets and the dream sequence lighting that's where people would probably pick at this for being, like you said, art directed within an inch of its life. (laughs) Um, Because everything else, you know, like the costuming, any of the makeup, any of the effects, any of the anything is very, very subtle and very well done and very natural. It's those lighting effects that Mm. make a lot of visuals pop and a lot of the sets pop. This movie attempts to answer a question that has been plaguing Mr. Sutherland's mind. And the minds of all mankind for eons. What happens after you die? Definitively. Once and for all. Dirt nap. Dirt nap. Well, they, for years, people have been encountering people that have had near-death experiences and describe very similar things. Why is that? Why does everyone describe almost identical things? Or not entirely identical, but across cultures, uh, races, genders, ages... Uh, very similar things can crop up. What if you could kill yourself, flatline, totally, be brain dead for a minute or more, and then be brought back by a skilled team of doctors? And keeping this all within the scientific method, which is something that, you know, on one hand, being skeptical, I really appreciate. And on the other hand, having so many conversations with my mother who was very interested in near-death experiences, what people were seeing, and things like reincarnation, very, very important topics to her that she would mull over verbally with people any chance that she could. Mm -hmm. Because it was fascinating to her, just like it is to many, many people. And to be able to conduct this in a scientific setting with, like you said, skilled doctors ready to bring you back and record all of this stuff and have the subjects not be 
mm, what would the word be? I don't want to say gullible or naive or like Sylvester Stallone's mom or hippy dippy or anything <laughs> like that. Have them be of a scientific mind as well and be mm -hmm. willing to report accurately what they saw. Fascinating premise. Mm -hmm. I like that it's not just a drama. I like that they took this from this fascinating idea done in a scientific method and made it a horror film. Mm -hmm. Oh, speaking of uh, horror films, we forgot Kevin Bacon is in this. How could you forget? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I can tell you who forgets about a lot of this, this movie. A lot is Julia Roberts fans because oh, this God. movie came out the same year as Pretty Woman. As what? Uh, it was this really obscure movie. I think Richard Gere is in it. I think it's about a guy who buys a prostitute oh, cool. and they destroyed the moon. I'm not what? entirely sure. Crazy. I know, right? Prostitutes, you say. Right? Oh, is this the one where she has a roommate and they keep their rent money in the back of the toilet? And then I got I lost interest? I think that's the same movie. I think you're thinking of Heathers. Uh, no. Oh, oh wait. So. I've never seen that movie. Oh, my. Get out. Get out. Get out. Yeah, we should watch Heathers. Um, we had a big argument one time about how, like, Heathers was your Mean Girls and my Mean Girls is your Heathers. Yeah, that was a good argument, and I still remember it. I still hate Mean Girls. <laughs> now I'm just going to be, like, obstinate about Heathers. He doesn't even go here. <laughs> So yeah, Julia Roberts, uh, I think it's like her only horror role mm. where all these other actors have been in something. And I've like, got to say Kevin Bacon in the following to see him in the following and to see him in this. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to see how he hasn't changed. His skill hasn't. He's still an amazing actor. He's, mm -hmm. He hasn't changed. Yeah. His inflection, his tone, his voice, his portrayal, his delivery, all of that is just pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's aged. And I've gotten so used to the way that Kevin Bacon looks. It's weird to see him look so pristine and young and fresh and wick. Yeah, he's like a juicy boy. He's a juicy boy. Big juicy boy. Andro. He's like another little Tilda Swinton. He is a little bit like an Andro Tilda Swinton. I love it. I love it. No, it was really, really cool to see. And he's had some like horror roles. And he's Friday had these... the 13th, yeah. Hollow Man. Uh, I'm forgetting another one. but Oliver Platt's been on all kinds of stuff. We have our Keeper Sutherland Lost Boy. Oh, yeah. 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 And he's still looking Lost Boy is wonderful in this movie. He really, really is. Yeah. There's even scenes where they could have just like cut clips from each movie and swapped them it's out. in the graveyard? Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, they could have just swapped them out. Even when he's falling, some of those flying vampire scenes, they could have just spliced a few of those in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a tall tree. But in regards to Julia Roberts, I don't really think she's done anything even, even like even a mid to late 90s thriller. I don't think that she's ever done where like people are chasing serial killers and they're all on computers like clackety clack i don't even think she's done anything like that i think it's dramas and romantic comedies and i don't know and she's done she's done i mean obviously she's julia roberts she's she's does big movies all the time not yeah. so much doesn't work as much anymore but i think that's by choice but uh i embarrassingly forgot she was in this and so when we started the movie I was like, God, she looks like Julia Roberts. <laughs> it was really adorable. God, she looks like Julia Roberts. I was like, who is this actress? Why does she look just like Julia Roberts? 
Well, it's Julia Roberts. That's, that's why. That's why. That's a great reason. It's I, interesting to see these cast members who all went on to do big, big things. It's cool to see them all together. Not at the very start of the career. The, we're not talking about these are their first roles. But they were still young Hollywood. Very, very much so. And, yeah, they weren't at the very beginning of their game. There's no bad acting in this whatsoever. It's all really, really amazingly scripted and amazingly delivered. But to see what they went on to, all of them, it's really, really cool to see such an early piece with all of them in it. And I don't think any of them really acted together again. I'd have to really do some deep IMDb connections searching for that one. But off the top, I can't think of anything that they were all in together again. Mm -hmm. I think Julia Roberts' agent probably sat back and looked at this and looked at Pretty Woman and said, you know what, whichever one just makes more money, that's the direction we will send you in. Mm, Well, Pretty Woman definitely was the, the big hit of that year for her. Uh, this movie, not so much. It only has a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes, but that just goes to show me that film critics don't always really know what they're talking about. Uh, that's funny, coming from someone who criticizes movies. But I don't really criticize them. I talk about them. Yeah, no, it's true. And we wouldn't, like, try and bend other people's opinion to our own, especially due to stupid reasons. Because I think um, a lot of the criticism for this film might come from super square conservatives square conservatives yeah super square conservatives you mean like four sides yeah oh my god those who the minute you say life after death they're just like pshaw get out of here you hippie with your weird long hair ideas get a job (laughs) i think that's part of it i mean there was uh low ratings for 13 ghosts because it was too loud maybe this film was too loud i don't know it might be I saw a very smart uh, movie that dealt with, like you said, bullies, post-traumatic stress, uh, drug addiction. Uh, and, and the overall theme is consequences, but in a very bizarre way. Now, Kiefer Sullivan's character has this wacky idea that if we were to go brain dead we could cross over or learn something. We don't know. Well, that's when everyone sees these same things that they're seeing yeah. across cultures and time is when their brain dies. Yeah, and when they're brought back. So he gathers his crack team of young, hot doctors. Kevin Bacon is is like the the most like army surplusiest cowboy <laughs> fucking... He repels with rock climbing gear out of his window instead of using the stairs in one of the opening scenes where you're also learning that he's on a four-month suspension for medical school for being a little too overzealous when trying to bring someone back. There's nothing crazier than a bad boy doctor student. Not unattractive. No, he's wearing his fucking like brown leather jacket and his super tight jeans and he's got his like Kevin Bacon wonderful mane blowing in the fucking wind. I knew a guy just like him back in the day, but he dealt drugs. He wasn't a medical school student. That was the thing. You go to his fucking van or his truck or whatever, his like army surplus truck, and I was just like, this is a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the other ones sort of fit, you know. Sort of. I, Julia Roberts looks like a, a washed out art student to me. Like just like really frumpy clothes and her glasses and like their hair tied back. And then of course, you know, she she takes off the glasses and takes off... Uh, puts her hair down and she's Julia Roberts glam. And then Oliver Platt, which I 
move would be then hero to all hipsters. This oh should be God. a cult classic amongst oh hipsters because he is the godfather of it all, clearly. Like, I feel like he was born with a vest and a bow tie on, his cascading wavy hair. Like, his elbows just sprouted leather patches on them. In the womb? In the womb, right. There was that one part that you had pointed out when he's... Because uh, he's he's one of the secretaries, basically, of the crew. He's responsible for taping all of this like you would, like a coroner would when they're doing their, their autopsy, mm-hmm. where you'd record tape record everything that's going on. Um, or as oncologists often do when they're reviewing their notes. Um he is reviewing his nose and talking about life after death to himself on a couch with his feet up. And you're like, check him out. He's doing like slam poetry. <laughs> he is doing slam poetry. And that's basically what he was doing. Was... He's like the crisp air and the dry leaves beneath my feet. It's all in darkness. I'm like, what? The These are what? his medical notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just his look. Like he's got a really dapper hairstyle. Even for 1990, and nowadays, it's a coveted hairstyle. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. We got William Baldwin there, sexiest man alive, <sighs> having his efficient sex with ladies while he records them like a creeper. Meh. What do you do? It's a hobby. It's a bad hobby. Sure. <laughs> yep. It's a it's a Baldwin thing. You you haven't seen Sliver. You really got it. You could splice some bits in from Sliver to this. When movie. you say Baldwin thing, like you're trying to suggest that his whole family is into filming people having sex. I don't know that. But I don't not know that. <laughs> Do the Baldwins film people having sex, asking for a friend. <laughs> he looks amazing, though. That's a fact. He's and very cute. He another... kind of looks like he's always about to yawn to me, but I get you. Not unattractive, which is a, is a term I'm going to use a couple times in this. And I used it a couple times watching it, and it's something that I thought when I first watched it when it came out. It's a very pretty cast. The very pretty cast. And very pretty set. Very pretty everything. I really enjoy the fuck out of this movie. The aesthetics are really fantastic. Kiefer Sutherland is the first one to go under. He experiences... One minute. One minute. That This is actually important information because, as we'll learn, the time someone is brain dead, they seem to be getting closer to something. Now, not just brain death. Not just yeah. brain death, but to something. There, there seems to be... Well, they're sort of sticking their toe in the pool at first, right? They're mm-hmm. going under for one minute and then bring him back because Mm -hmm. that's kind of guaranteed they see a lot of patients that they deal with and a lot of like case studies that they've followed of people coming back from death one minute is easy one minute is easy there's no cell death the blood's still flowing the heart just stopped it's easy to get it going again they're trained professionals they're trained to do this over and over again so one minute is easy and they're successful Mm -hmm. he dies and he's brought back Having seen visions of children and a dog running in a field, it looks like they're chasing a young boy in a, in a red zippy hoodie, and he wakes up. He talks about his experiences, and now more people want to try it. Right off, um, Julie Roberts' character wants to go next, mm-hmm. but she's superseded by the chivalrous gentleman she's surrounded by. They seem to be doing this type of bidding because it's they're daring them each other in a way to go for longer and longer periods. So they pretty much determine that if we if one person goes for one minute and this is what they discovered, somebody else has to go longer. Otherwise, 
It's just redundant data. So William Baldwin's character is, wants to go for over a minute. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. Because he outbids Julie Roberts' character. Yeah. His death experience is like a sexy student film. It's all black and white and kind of blurry. For and nipples and legs and it, flesh it, and lips. Yeah, lots of sexy time. Lots, yeah. of, lots of ladies' bodies. Which isn't untoward because we've already been introduced to the fact that he's a fucking creeper and just banging chicks and videotaping them without them knowing and has like a fucking sex library. He does. Of his own personal porn. Yeah. Like oh, a psychopath. Vain. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's necessarily psychopathic. And I think that's my argument later on in the film is that he's going through the motions of being a psychopath without being one. So, of course, that's fucking damaging. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. So, of course, his afterlife experience is sort of like the 40 virgins, you know, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Now, Kevin Bacon is a self-proclaimed atheist. And we know this because he's going to say it about every five fucking minutes, which I feel is really annoying because, look, if you're an atheist and, you know, whatever, I'll put the cards on the table. I'm not exactly a believer of anything myself. So every time they say anything, it's like, well, I'm an atheist, so. And they're also they're also saying it for him, like, well, yeah. you have to this because you're the atheist. You're the atheist. Yeah. I was like, you guys are saying it like a philosophy student who won't get into an argument because they're a philosophy student. They're like, oh, do you sure you want to get into an argument with a philosophy student? It is kind of redundant. I don't, I, I can see what they're trying to do, of course, because by the end, when he sort of has a change of heart to a certain degree, it's he like, things like, oh, yeah, he was an atheist. So if they could turn the atheist, that means it must be real. Yeah. Because if you do if you do these things to people who are already believers, then they're instantaneously going to attribute anything bizarre that they experienced as religious. Oh, of course. If you, They're not the people you want in an experiment like this. Yeah. But then you have his adversary in Julia Roberts' character, whose character name I keep forgetting... Um, she isn't quite a flaky, you know, psychic friends network type person, but she is a believer in life after death and has been interviewing her patients about near death experience ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. She keeps visiting an old woman on her deathbed at the hospital and talking to other people, especially the one who is very, very psychic friends network about it oh yeah she's totally calling up miss cleo yeah it's kind of hilarious there was a light and all my friends and music was so beautiful i want to stab her in the temple um you said that a lot today mostly off mic but (laughs) i say that i want to stab people in the temple a lot that's something that comes to mind sorry um more humane than i thought for you i'm being polite yeah that's a PC version of Lydia. She has a change of heart as well. So sort of in an adversary to Kevin Bacon's character, mm-hmm. Labratio. What a name. Ah, oh, I love his name. Everyone loves a little Labratio, don't they? <laughs> don't they, Wes? Like a big Labratio. You know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about? No wonder her and Julia Roberts hang out so much in this film. So it is sort of like they are the yin and yang in, of this opinion in this film, where he's an atheist who somewhat comes around by the end, we'll get to that. And then she is a a believer in life after death and has to believe 
that there's some sort of something there for you or you go to another plane or you see something that makes it all better, that it is a better place you're going to. Mm -hmm. What we should mention is that there is a really bizarre side effect to seeing these things. Once you've experienced brain death in this manner and you've been brought back, it is possible that the visions that you see will start appearing to you while you're alive, conscious, and awake. So you brought a little bit of this death back with you. Mm-hmm. Kiefer Sutherland is being plagued by this little boy in the red-zipped hoodie that mm-hmm. you see when he goes under. Uh, William Baldwin's character, Joe, is being plagued by sexy porn tapes, which doesn't seem so bad to me. He but seems to whatever. be seeing the videos that he made everywhere, or he would encounter women who aren't really there and feeding him lines that they he used to feed them. Yeah. Which I guess is unnerving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll go with that. It's unnerving. But Kiefer Sutherland's basically being stalked and hunted by this little boy. And 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 not and it's not a haunted in a way it's like cuz that's a bit of a a misnomer. It can interact with him and hurt him. It has. It can break into his apartment. It yeah. leaves muddy footprints on the floor. It's yeah. definitely there. It's a very present spirit, if yeah. it's a spirit at all, or a manifestation of his own mind, which mm-hmm. we're sort of led to believe. Of course, this thing isn't actually manifesting. This thing isn't actually there. Mm-hmm. He's having a little bit of a Tyler Durden moment. It is very Tyler Durden, and that uh, uh, Fight Club spoilers to people who've never seen Fight Club. But basically he is experiencing something that he is interacting that he thinks is so real that it's almost like he's hurting himself mm-hmm. through his struggles or whatever. And so through the course of the movie, his face gets beat the fuck up. I mean, he's had to stitch his, his uh, cheek closed and his lips been busted open. He's got cuts. So I love that scene. And I've loved it when I first saw it, it gave me the heebie jeebies. And now I just kind of want to like pause it and rewind it and slow mo it. Cause it's just, it's, I don't know. It's a cool scene. It's another thing where I hold that high bar. I've seen people stitch themselves up in film before. Uh, some of them a little more gory and stuff like that, but I really like this. Mm-hmm. I think the bloodshot eye on the same side as the, as the cheek damage is a really nice touch. Mm-hmm. I think it makes it like a little nastier because the cut itself is like, oh, ooh, that's pretty bad. But combined with the all the ruptured blood vessels in one eye, it has a really nice effect on it. Yeah, yeah. It is filmed really, really well, too, in that sexy apartment at that. Yeah, his sexy impossible apartment. He's a med, he's a med school student. I need to emphasize that they're all med school students. Yeah, people who actually in reality probably have zero dollars and are eating ramen noodles and under no sleep conditions. They don't have time to have little fun hobbies like this in the abandoned wing of the medical college. That was the other thing. I was like, I was like where are they? I was like, they're just like a fucking place with like plastic sheets hanging from the ceiling. And they have, they have the privacy and ability to, to cart all of this medical equipment out of the university and bring it to a special area. And look, that's a nitpicky fucking thing. That's a I'm just picking it apart. But it just struck me as odd. No, because you're you're thinking, okay, med student, a fictional med student. You go in and you're like, I'm just gonna borrow this gurney, and they're like, Where the fuck are you going with that? Yeah, Put like you back. can just walk out with a gurney. Absolutely not. Let alone all the fucking equipment that they Defibrillators have. Defibrillators and everything like yeah. that. Yeah, all the drugs. All the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the heat blanket's the only thing they could really actually get away with taking. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But either way, it is nitpickety, but there's a lot of things. If you want to nitpick at this movie, you could tear it apart. And that's probably why it has a low rating on Rotten Tomatoes, because people on the internet love to tear things apart from the comfort of their own home. Yeah, maybe that sounded bitter. Um, well, we should also mention that uh, Kevin Bacon's character is being harassed by a little a, a, a vision of a little girl that he bullied in grade school with a bunch of friends, brought her to tears. She appears to him on a subway and just unloads a string of profanities that, you know... That's, I... That I still love. I There's a few <laughs> moments in this film that I give pause to every time. And I will every time. I could watch this every day and I will stop every time when Kiefer Sutherland is stitching his face up. Pretty much every time they're killed and brought one of themselves back because it's mm-hmm. all they're all very cool there's some criticism about them replaying that it gets redundant that they're going through the same like tense scene when they're bringing each other back but i think i love every single one of them because they're all very unique and i will definitely stop when that little girl is unloading a stifler-esque string of profanities <laughs> i love it it's fucking amazing she calls them everything from like banana breath to like needle dick like fart face like fag got a match got a match oh my god you're a face in my ass i love it when i was little because i'm the same age we found out i'm 10 days younger than the guy that played the little boy Mm -hmm. uh, billy the murderous child the murderous child who fucking amazing role actually terrifying and very intense super fucking intense and maniacal and scary straight up scary he's so fierce and strong that's the thing sometimes you're like oh what's a little eight-year-old boy gonna do i was like this little boy fuck you up that's probably the first time i ever heard the word fellatio yeah 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 i think i actually turned to my mother for a definition oh my which she gave oral sex honey that's how she would have said it too oh okay back to the film and the string of profanities um yeah that little girl that's one of those scenes that i really like and it's done it's shot extremely well and he is the atheist he is the skeptic so unlike the other ones who have sort of kept all their little weird apparitions to themselves especially keith or subtle oh especially because i think he's more he he more so knows what's going on. William Baldwin character probably doubts his own sanity. Mm-hmm. So they're keeping these things to themselves. Kiefer Sutherland's an asshole. And he's waiting for... Well, not Kiefer Sutherland is an asshole, but no, his the character is an asshole. Yeah. Um, he's waiting to see what the others see. Because if this is a symptom of that, he needs to document this. So he's not going to say anything because he's going to play control subject all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And decide to wait and see what the others see. But Kevin Bacon comes back sees this little girl screaming at him, recognizes her, and goes straight back to the others. And he's like, no. At this moment, Julia Roberts' character has finally gotten her wish, and they are putting her under mm. for her, what, she wanted to go for a two-minute, 53-minute kind of jag? It, yeah, it was, it was a pretty... Four minutes. Four was, minutes four is minutes what she, was she finally won. She finally won with her four-minute bet. Yeah, or or maybe, maybe even five. It's hard to remember. It's a little foggy. But when he comes rushing back in and saying, no, we're bringing her back right now because I'm seeing things. And finally, it all comes out. Mm-hmm. They admit to seeing the 
porn, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the self porn everywhere and the girls and they finally drag it out of Kiefer Sutherland that not only is he being witness to these apparitions that he brought back from his afterlife journey, but he's being fucking stalked and at the mercy of being killed by this ghost. Yeah. If, it's, if it is a ghost. Mm-hmm. I was like, so far, none of the other uh, hallucinations, for lack of a better term, phenomena that has been happening have been violent toward, like, no one's in danger except for him. Yeah. He's in absolute danger. That's probably why I keep thinking of it more of a ghost. And I do like in all these dream sequences that they're, like, these hallucinations that they're having to almost like a super, super fucking deep hypnotherapy. Because they're remembering things about these things that they had forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, they all, with the exception of William Baldwin's character, everyone else is a lot of repressed memories or things that are not so much repressed, but, you know, you you acted a certain way as a kid and you just forget all about it. They were also, yeah, they were very, very young and didn't even understand the consequences of their action or the things that they were seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Julie Roberts recollections come back fully we can see that there were many things that were happening around her when she was five years old that she couldn't have understood Mm -hmm. that she did now under this hallucinogenic dream sequence waking dream fucking hypnotherapy that this afterlife experience has granted them yeah her experience that she had was her father coming home from the war and it was a very happy memory and time But then, as it tends to in movies like this, things take a dark turn. She goes up into the bathroom when she's not supposed to, and he's facing away from her. And at first, you don't know what's going on. Because, like, what is he, jerking off or something? Yeah, it's like a red light and kind of, like, Yeah, he looks kind of of sweaty and stuff. And then he goes barreling down the stairs, and then you get a sense that, oh, he killed himself in a pickup truck outside of their house. It blew his brains out. And it's just all bad timing on her mother's part because she apparently in the slow-mo dream sequence uh, had told her to not go in the room. Mm-hmm. And as the father's running down the stairs and outside, she yells at a little tiny Julie Roberts, it's all your fault. Mm-hmm. And then her father kills herself. So what a thing to have impacting a five-year-old girl mm-hmm. be yelled at, it's all your fault, moments before your father shoots himself. Mm-hmm. No wonder as an adult medical student, she's fascinated with death and needs to know that there's something beyond. Mm-hmm. She needs to know that like her dad's in a better place or something. Yeah. Anything uh, really I think would help her psyche at this time. Mm-hmm. A really well-wrought character, actually, when you think about it. Yeah, and it's Julia Roberts, so she does a wonderful job playing it. Oh, yeah. There's a weird sense in this movie where they're not explaining particularly why it seems to be sins of the past that bubble forward in the moments of brain death. They don't take the time to really explain the significance of that. What they do explain or what they do present to us is that these will only stop if you atone that's right if you atone for your sin apparently apologize forgive whatever it is that you need to do to cleanse these things these regrets Mm -hmm. basically is what they are Mm -hmm. this is all happening uh i we should mention that all these characters are really high strung while interacting with each other and you brought up a really interesting point that I wanted to talk about um you brought up the point about these people 
trust each other enough to kill each other and trust the group to bring them back. But they don't trust each other to know their deepest, darkest, most private secrets. Yeah, I would like to know that the person who I have trusted to kill me and bring me back, I would like to know like how their dad died. Or something like that. I'd like to think that I would know something like, like that. Like, why are you really doing this? What are yeah. you hoping to see? What yeah. have you seen? Kiefer Sutherland's character is egotistical, quick-tempered, very like, surreptitious. And he, once he comes back, he is, I'm going to be famous. I am going to be the most famous person in history. And then, in his mind... Everyone else is riding his coattails. And he doesn't make any bones about accusing oh. them of doing that. Oh, no. Even like even the, the tensions... The reason why the, the resurrection scenes are always so intense is because you have doctors that professionally, or soon-to-be doctors, professionally attempting to do a thing, bring someone back to life. But at the same time... Like their egos and annoyance with each other and, and the baggage that they're carrying with all of the stuff that's getting revealed is all boiling to the surface. So they're venomous towards each other and they say cocky ass shit while they're trying to do their jobs. Yeah, so, like when that one scene when they're really, really tense because it's the last resurrection scene of bringing, well, the second last-ish, mm-hmm. bringing Julia Roberts back. They're having a hard time bringing her back because she's mm-hmm. been under the longest now so far. Yeah. And he's like, got her. And then Kevin Bacon turns around and is like, don't have her because she flatlines again. And it's like, oh, my God, you guys all fucking hate each other. You're being sarcastic. You're being snippy. You're yeah. fucking bitching at each other while you're doing this very important thing you should have a level head about. And, yeah, you don't care about one another. Well, they're even, like, egging each other on for how long they can be dead for. They're, they're like, minute 10, minute 20, two minutes, 2.25. Oh, looks like we got a winner. Yeah. Because the other person, like... It's so super cold, right? Oh, yeah. My favorite, favorite line is Kevin Bacon's, like, oh, yeah, you want to be a hero? They'll build monuments to you about this high with name on them. Rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) So much death jokes in this that it's... Near and dear to my heart. They even bust on that one guy because he hasn't gone under at all. It's yeah, just like, Oliver you... Platt's character. Oliver Platt is like, because he won't. Uh, he doesn't really seem to have an interest in it because he thinks it's crazy. And the longer that they're brain dead for, the bigger risk uh, of not being able to bring them back. And it is getting more difficult. So how how much can you edge towards the precipice before you fall over? That's what Kiefer Sutherland's character wants to find once and for all. But you get a hint that it's more than wanting to see what is on the other side. What is all of this for? Keith Sutherland also wants to have been dead the longest because he hates the fact that he was only dead for a minute and everyone else has been dead for longer. Yeah, that's his fault for going first. Kevin Bacon's character doesn't help much either because he even admits, I felt as if I had gone a little bit longer that I had seen something else that mm -hmm. would have explained all of this to me. Mm -hmm. And in that, the little bastard just made it worse. Yeah. So they want to atone. Kevin Bacon tracks down the girl that that he bullied. He He has it the easiest, I think. He definitely has it the easiest. William Baldwin has to admit to his fiance that he has had an endless sex parade that 
and he's been filming it all. Ooh, bummer. <laughs> Sorry, he doesn't have, like, a ghost boy beating him the fuck up. He doesn't have, like, a, a horrific vision of a dead father ghosting everything that he does. And he doesn't have this dirt mouth little kid falling around subways. He just gets to see a bunch of fucking porn. And half the time when... And I don't know if it's just that that stone-cold Baldwin ability... Every time I see him in the film, seeing himself on the screen doing the sex, he doesn't look that displeased. So what? Ooh. Oh, there I am again, banging some chick. It's like, oh, I look good. It's not like he's scared of it, really. There's only one or two points, like when he looks through the video camera finder, and that is kind of creepy because if you look through the video camera, you're you're expecting to see what it is you're filming, not a film of you banging some chick. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of freaky, but he doesn't look like scared. This isn't, like, destroying his life. Yeah. It's distracting. Mm-hmm. So he has to go and atone for his distraction. Yeah. Bummer. I just don't think it fits, necessarily. It's it's the odd one out. It's not a sin of the past. It's a sin of what he is literally doing at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, the I only mean, life he's destroyed is his fiance, and, I mean, she'll get over it. Yeah, because she'll be like, oh, he was a real creep, and he was cheating on me. Yeah, which isn't, like... And that isn't weird. That happens like every day, unfortunately, because people are fuckers. Julia Roberts' atonement is the first time that we see it occur in this weird sort of state where she's having like a hallucination because she can't she can't go back to her father and get any more information. But what she can do is have like a crazy trip <laughs> where she gets the full extent of it. He'd come back from the war, and what she had walked in on was him doing heroin. And in his moment of absolute shame of of his daughter seeing him that way, he bolted out the door and killed himself. And in this moment, which is a very touching scene, uh, I think anyway, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a cheap date. Uh, she tells him it's okay, and they hug each other out. Which is, I guess, all that she could have done because at that point, you're right, there's no one left living for her to apologize to or to, you know, have apologized to her. There's no one left but her and she's mm-hmm. the only person that she needs to let yeah. go of. Yeah. And it wasn't because, like, in her case, it wasn't really even a sin of the past. It was a tragedy in the past that yeah, she's a little girl. She had nothing to do with it. And the only sin I think is her holding on to it so long. Yeah. But it's only because she didn't understand. And because when she comes back, she wants to talk to that old woman again because she thinks like life after death, what a crock, like it's not happy, it's miserable, it's 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 bullshit. She becomes uh uh quite the nihilist. Well, she doesn't see her father in a fucking robe playing a harp with little white wings on him. What mm-hmm. she sees is him with the back of his head blown out, looking pretty much exactly the same as he did shooting up heroin last time she saw him. Mm-hmm. So I guess that would shatter the hopes and dreams of those thinking that there's life after death and it's all nice and beautiful. Or like every dog you ever met is going to greet you at the pearly gates and you'll have a big cuddle puddle. Now, we haven't really mentioned this, but that is your fantasy vision of heaven, right? No, it's not. As covered in this film... They say that, and and many people who talk about life after death experiences, and you and I had had this conversation before watching this film, it's what you think you'll see. 
right? So your synapses are firing those final little bursts of energy and little bits of light happening behind your eyelids are telling you what you think you're going to see. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure of that. So if I keep telling myself that I'm going to meet every dog I ever met and get to pet them all and play for days, then maybe when I slip away, that's what I'll see. And that'll be kind of cool. What song is playing in the background while you're doing this this dog orgy, for lack of a better... I haven't quite fleshed out the entire thing on trying All to build... All the minutia? Yeah, trying to build this like fantasy that I'll try and cling to when I'm dying in a nursing home just alone. Think, just think dog orgy. Just keep saying dog orgy. No, I can't say dog orgy. That's filthy. That sounds so horrible. <laughs> it's like some fucking deep, dark web, fucking sick bestiality porn <laughs> stuff. I'm talking about friendly, happy puppies. Right, gotcha. Yeah. I'm just saying you might get the vision guaranteed if like every night before bed you just say dog orgy six times. Uh, it's better than, you know, fear of like a fiery crash or mm. drowning or all the other th- scenarios that I've played out in my head way too many times. If I just keep hinging on cuddle puddle, mm-hmm. not dog orgy, cuddle puddle. Cuddle puddle, gotcha. Oh, I hate even saying that. <laughs> I don't know which one I hate more. I think I think like cuddle puddle is the PC term for an orgy. Ah, oh, fuck. <laughs> I can't win. I can't win. Kiefer Sutherland's character has the absolute worst and darkest secret of all. He killed a little boy. Yeah. And Huck it rocks at him. Another scenario where there's no one left to apologize to. The most aggressive, dangerous experience that any of them are having comes from the one person who caused, legitimately caused, a death. Yeah. And it's not a wonder, you know, Liberatio gets swore at. And and, and it is a kind of scary scene because she's coming at him and it's this little girl and she's almost possessed the way mm-hmm. that she's swearing at him. And she's still alive. All he did is bully her and tease her to tears. There was no actual bodily harm done. Mm-hmm. And she's quite adamant as far as a vision goes. Now you have Billy, who was actually fucking killed. No wonder he's coming back. And, like, he has scars all over his face. He's being beat the hell. He's bruised all over his body. He's not sleeping because he's terrified he's going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. And he's going to medical school and yeah. all those other things that he's doing, you know, like killing his friends and bringing them back to life. You know, it takes a lot out of a guy. I don't think we see him eat or anything throughout this entire show. Nah, there's no time for that. No. He's yeah. got to be snarky with his medical friends. Yeah, he just practices snark and it fuels his soul and his body. Um, so, yeah, he's like getting the fucking hell beat out of him. And when Libratio is going to atone and apologize to the girl he had bullied, Kiefer Sutherland's character actually gets the shit beat right out of him and almost gets stabbed through the face with a pickaxe. Oh, yeah. Which is, there's a lot of elements that put this firmly into the genre of horror. That entire car scene is horror. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I don't care what kind of psychological 
thriller, thriller <laughs> bullshit tag you try to Dark put on drama. it. I'm sorry. Like, you're at a car. I'm getting a, a POV shot of, like, a little thing running around a car. He's locking the doors, rolling up the windows. It's breaking in. And then there's, like, a, a crazy kid with, like, blue lighting on him, like, laughing maniacally while he's trying to stab you in the face with a pitchfork. It's or not a pitchfork, horror. but a, a pickaxe. Yeah. yeah. It's horror. Yeah. It's absolute horror. Even a, a kid ringing out a string of profanities, like, while, like, there's a spotlight on her, everyone in the subway is darkened, they all, like, laughing around him and shit like that, and he's like, whoa, like... They're all gonna laugh all gonna at you. Laugh at you. That's, it's all, it's all that. Yeah. It's all sissy spacing. Um, <laughs> that's horror, too. Yeah. You know, like even the idea when you think about it, because the tension that they've just killed somebody, you want to have a a horror film that deals a lot with that. It's like Shallow Grave, where it's there's one death in the whole film and the whole film revolves around that. And it's all the whole, well, what the fuck are we going to do that? They're sort of edge playing with that Mm -hmm. through this whole film a couple times over. Mm -hmm. Like, if this person dies, what the fuck are they going to do? That's a a scary thing. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I run out of almond milk and I think, what the fuck am I going to (laughs) do? And that's horror to me. So, like, from the smallest element of these people are toying with a horrible thing, what the fuck are they going to do, to being terrorized in the back of a little claustrophobic van and that no one can really save you and no one can hear you scream and it's probably a vision so you're doing this all to yourself and there's blood everywhere and you've been terrorized for days by this person it's fucking super horror so i don't understand why it's constantly pushed into the psychological thriller i don't know it could have been the collection of actors where they decided well you know maybe not and you don't want a horror film under your belt is that what it is? Maybe they don't want it on the resume. Uh, it could. It, it might not. It could not even be coming from them. It could just be coming from like studio perceptions. But typically speaking, when you are when the words like psychological or thriller are thrown into a horror movie, it's usually indicating that well, horror movie is like tits and campers and and a maniac. And if it's not that, then it's not horror. Because the aesthetic of horror has changed firmly decade per decade. Yeah. What scares us, what is successful in horror changes. And critics, uh, and uh, critics mostly, because they're the ones that decide what these fucking things are called uh, or how they're going to be marketed. Yeah. And this thing has critics. um, We'll say, oh, horror, that's a dirty word. You say horror movie and people are going to think it's dumb. But if you say psychological thriller, well, then people love it. That happens with authors, too. You know, there's many authors that you either, you know, dive head first and shove your fucking arm elbow deep into the horror genre. And that's what you are as a horror author. And then there's horror authors that are like, oh, no, I write dark urban noir or... <laughs> Make up some fucking shit. Like, the horror label is disappearing in some bookstores because people don't want to read horror, but they want to read horror novels that are called thrillers. Uh, In the UK, horror gets slotted under crime a lot Mm -hmm. because a lot of horror is, you know, basically a crime story. Well, killing people is illegal in most countries. Mm -hmm. Luckily, yeah. Yeah. Um, But that is where horror fans know to go to. Yeah. If you go to if you go to straight up horror sections in like a chapters or something like that, 
it's all like Dracula and vampire erotica (laughs) or uh, Lovecraftian horror or things that are undeniably horror. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, you go to like true crime or yeah, crime, true crime, sci-fi, things like that. And you'll find horror novels there too. And in literature, in general literature, most of the horror is slotted under general literature and smaller Mm -hmm. bookstores here too. But film, I suppose, is the same thing. Although, I think that if this movie would have come out like seven to nine years after it did, it would have been slotted firmly into horror. Elbow deep. Mm-hmm. Then again, I mean, you're still dealing with, uh, this was the decade. By the way, this is a 90, 1990, another example of good horror that exists in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Suck on it. I'm going to bring that up every single time. I mean, this is the decade of like... Silence of the Lambs in Seven, right? Where where people are just like, oh, well, you, you take movies with clear-cut horror elements to it, and you just... Thriller. It's a psychological thriller. Psychological thriller. It's a dark drama. Because horror is a dirty word. Because coming out of the 80s, horror was Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers and... It was boobs and blood. Yeah. yeah boobs and blood. And so they, they say, well, we call it... And, and, and when Hollywood decides... That a genre is not profitable anymore, they'll still try to squeak those out the door because that's what people want to make, but they'll just call it something different. So Kiefer Sutherland wants to go back under. He has decided that it's time to stop fucking around and he wants to go under for like five minutes or something even crazier. I can't quite remember, but everyone is against it. They have achieved atonement. And so they seem to, although they don't specifically say, and now everyone will leave you alone. But it seems to indicate that they somehow have done it, and that seemed to have been the key. Either he, way, they're done with this experiment, though. Yeah, they're all absolutely made it very done. Clear. They almost didn't get Julia Roberts back. And any farther, again, they're teetering on that precipice of too far. And this definitely seems like it'll be too far, and they won't be able to bring him back. He, uh, Kiefer Sutherland needs to, because unlike them, he can't get atonement for what he's done. Even though they, when he reveals it to them, because he drags them to the graveyard and says, "This is the, this is where he is," in the, a very large tombstone, uh, the type of tombstone that I don't think they really make anymore, but. Uh, he tells them that he has to go to see what is there. Go farther with this. Otherwise, he could end up dead from this haunting. Kevin Bacon and the others seem to try to explain to him, as like, you were a little kid. It's, it was an accident. You didn't mean to kill him. It wasn't deliberate. But it's obviously not enough for this apparition of Billy. Because, as Kiefer Sutherland explains in... Not hushed tones for once to the yeah. gravestone itself. I, I was torn away from my family. I went to a boys' school. I thought I paid my dues. Yeah. What more do you want? Try to become a doctor to help people. Yeah. This is clearly not enough. So what else can he do? All he can do is what the others have been able to do is go apologize. Be apologized to. And of course, at this point, everyone has just been brought to their wits end. They won't do it. It's too dangerous. They're, they're, they've been playing God this entire time, toying with life and death for the for the science of it all. And toying with the future of their careers. Because if they were caught, or if one of them did actually die, and this would all come out in the wash, 
mm-hmm. they would all lose their prospective licenses. Yeah, there's no way that they would ever be able to do any anything. Now, Kiefer Sutherland takes it into his own hands. He's going to kill himself, like in the same sort of controlled medical fashion, and get back to that place of brain death. And he doesn't really seem to give a damn what if he's going to be able to be brought back. Although maybe in the back of his mind he hopes that he would, because he does call. He does, and he doesn't just stab himself in the temple or slit his wrists or disembowel himself or whatever method that you could think of to kill yourself um, in a theatrical way. Mm-hmm. He shoots himself up with potassium chloride, and he does cover himself with a cooling blanket, so he's going to experience less cell death, and he's going to have slowed blood and all of those nice things that will help them bring him back if they get there in time. Mm-hmm. So he has made calls, so... They can save him, but like you said, in the same respect, it, it seems that he doesn't really care if they do make it in time to bring him back. Mm-hmm. Because he's opened up a gate that he can't close, and if he does nothing, he will surely be killed. And if he tries to fix it and he dies anyway, well, whatever. Yeah, yeah. At least it would only be his life ruined at that point. Maybe it is a little bit of sacrifice to save the others in a way because they've, they're they they're fine. And if he just does this on his own, it's not their fault. When he returns to the vision, it's a much darker interpretation of it. It's no longer bright and sunny. It's dark. It's stormy. And he's the one being chased and tormented with Billy as part of the group of kids that was with them. Yeah. Um carried up to a tree and then having rocks hucked at him an endless supply of rocks i was like where are these kids getting all these rocks um which is really the only way to do it because that's i think a lot of what um bullies don't really get and what those who are bullied wish the bullies would get is if someone were treating them like this and a lot of bullies and it sounds like such a light term for someone who's killed another person, right? And hucked um, rocks at him. Like, just vicious. Yeah, they they stoned this boy to death, in a way. Because they threw rocks at him with what was the point? They were just going to keep throwing rocks at him until he fell out of the tree anyway. And then what, throw more rocks at him? Was that the whole point? Yeah. Either way. Um, the only way for him to really see what Billy had gone through is to be put through it himself. And that's exactly what this final vision does. Mm-hmm. To the point that he does fall out of the tree. At that point, all of his friends have figured out what the hell's going on. They've all rushed to this abandoned wing of the medical school that they've been using for their experiments. And they're trying very hard to bring him back. Mm-hmm. And they figure he's been under seven to nine minutes or something like that at this point. Yeah. Which seven minutes, if I'm correct, is when you experience brain death. Not entirely sure, but it sounds like it's probably in that ballpark. Yeah. So they're very worried that he's going to come back a vegetable. They've already tried all the fun tricks that they could on Julia Roberts. And she came back, luckily, with less trauma than they expected. But they don't expect much from someone mm-hmm. being under quite this long. Not to mention the fact that they're out of drugs, batteries aren't charged in the defibrillator, and they lose power. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very tense. In this whole sequence, uh, 
Kiefer Sutherland is finally struck by the final rock. He he screams he's sorry. Uh, it's a little boy version of him. And uh, Billy doesn't seem to care. He laughs maniacally, hits him in the chest with the rock. And he goes falling, super slow-mo. Like, it's the tallest tree in the world. And turns back into his adult form, hits the ground, and that's it. Uh, it's indicated in the real world that, look, he's been dead 12 minutes. He's gone. Yeah. And then that's when, I guess, the real the reason why Kevin Bacon was chosen for this group in the first place really kind of comes to light because he storms off, like, like has, like, a, a fucking tantrum on the medical equipment like he's uh he's like a tennis pro or something he's like <laughs> fucking throwing his racket and shit and uh and then he says no and he just like like he screams that he was a kid he didn't know any better he doesn't deserve to die and he just comes like flies at him with like the defibrillators and and they're like no 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 don't and boom then we're back inside Kiefer Sutherland's brain and it's a very ambiguous scene Billy and the dog there was a dog uh, we forgot to mention that was there that uh, was also killed or had its legs broken yeah by the by the tree falling a tree branch breaking they were standing together watching him and he's just sitting there with like his shirt open just looking like Dazed and dazed and uh, super juicy. There's a little bit of oh, it's super juicy. Is right, not unattractive. <laughs> not and unattractive. there's this light glowing from behind him. Mm-hmm. This proverbial light that people see when they're apparently leaving this world or coming back to it or whatever. He gives the uh, the little boy gives him a, an odd smile, a look, and and a nod, perhaps that he understood fully what he had gone through. Maybe that was the last lesson he needed to learn. It's really indiscernible and undescribable in a way because he's sort of, yeah, it's this Mona Lisa smile where you can't really tell what's going on. And for all of the really good acting from this kid and all the very clear emotion that has come out of his character up until this point, even this on my seventh, eighth, ninth, who knows how many times I've watched this movie, I still don't know what it is he's trying to say with that look. I think the look to me was an expression of mutual understanding. It was important to Billy that he, that Kiefer Sutherland knew up until the absolute final moments of death, what he experienced, the torment and the fear and the sadness that he experienced even when he's dead. Because what he has to know at this point was there was a portion of Billy's brain that was still alive even after he struck the ground. Yeah. And and so for Keith Sullivan to truly understand that, he needed to experience the exact same thing, going past the limits of brain death and to be closer to death than anyone else has and come back. Um, I think that it was like his retribution in in the living world going being taken away from his family all of it still could not make him understand truly what he had done from an emotional perspective 
And that is a lesson that a lot of bullies could benefit from. And I'm not saying that you need to make, make them go like brain dead and <laughs> then have them have these haunting visions. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, bullies do what they do, I guess. I mean, there's lots of studies and reasoning behind it, and I'm not equipped to really fucking say. But, I mean, really it kind of comes down to the fact that you torment people and or you get caught up in other people tormenting somebody and you don't even really think about their perspective because it's fun to you or it's funny or or you know you're getting a reaction that people seem to like uh uh or they behave a lot like um labratio's uh girl that he bullied and act like it was really no big thing and Mm -hmm. say like you know i'm married now it's all in the past we were Mm -hmm. just kids but even though like when she did say that you could tell that she was pained by it oh for sure and and it and and what it was was like you know poking at old wounds Mm -hmm. and she didn't want to talk about it and she was trying to say it's nothing it's nothing but in in her final moments where she said thank you quietly and Almost on the verge of, of tears, almost that entire conversation. Yeah. Where she, or, or like just really controlled emotions that she's trying not to let burst forward. Because maybe in her mind, she was was like, I don't want to like break down and let this person know that this ruled me for years. And, and even to say, like, I'm not that ugly girl anymore. And Kevin was like, you were never ugly. Like it was, it was us. You know yeah, what I'm saying? We're the ugly ones. But that speaks volumes to how she lived her life. And she's not a vindictive person. She's not out for revenge. And he's also a sympathetic personality as an adult and has given it a lot of clear thought. Unlike Kiefer Sutherland's character, who obviously didn't, who was just like, I paid my dues. I did my time. Like, yeah. stuff it, ghost. Or whatever he was. And Billy has no voice. He can't, because he's dead, come back and have any sort of conversation with mm-hmm. Kiefer Sutherland's adult character, of course. So yeah. he does need to walk a mile in his moccasins, yeah. as the First Nations would say. And boy, did he walk a mile in those moccasins. 12 mm. minutes dead, and his friends valiantly trying to save his life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Kevin Bacon, the heart whisperer, as yeah. he is, because that's why he was originally suspended, because he just doesn't give up, and he will pound on a dead body, and it's a little untoward, even among medical staff, for someone to disrespect a dead body trying to bring it back because mm-hmm. he just wouldn't quit. And that's why he was on this team, right? Mm-hmm. Not only because he was Kiefer Sutherland's pal, but because he wouldn't give up. And luckily, that worked out. If you care about Kiefer Sutherland's character making it. I think that Kevin Bacon had a good point. I think the fact that Yes, he's a bit of a shit. Yes, he's egotistical. And yes, he wanted to do this research for a lot of selfish reasons. And he withheld information. But also, he was responsible for killing somebody. And that's a deep shame mm-hmm. for for anyone. Yeah. Right? yeah. So he took pity on him. And yeah. of course, he's just one of those guys that believes no one deserves to die. And everyone needs to be given that chance. Mm-hmm. This movie uh, is very vague about what it actually believes is on the other side because from this movie, it's like, oh, so when you die and you come back, you're given visions of shitty things you used to do. (laughs) And then you have to go apologize to people in real life 
or make amends. Or so it's like, like AA. <laughs> it is a little bit of a, hi, my name is Wes. I've been dead for two minutes now. Hello, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Make a list of all the shitty things you did and go apologize to people. Yeah. I think I need to be dead for more than 12 minutes to get to take care of all the shitty things I've done. I don't know. I don't know. These are also things that they repressed and didn't think about, didn't talk about, and ignored and pretended that they didn't do or pretended it didn't affect them or other people. If you take ownership of these shitty things that you've done in your life and think about them clearly as an adult or even, you know, moments after doing them, then maybe you're a little bit better off. Maybe when you do pass on, you're not going to be having these regrets because that's one thing that a lot of people um, on the on deathbed do talk about are their regrets. A lot of the stages of grief that we know them today, mm-hmm. they were all taken from people who were terminal. They weren't necessarily taken from people who had had somebody pass on. These stages of grief as we know them, which are largely a myth and a little bit of a crutch for people that are grieving, they were all taken from people who were on their deathbed, terminally ill cancer patients and stuff like that. And a lot of what they talked about were their regrets, final acceptance of regrets and anger and things like that. So those are all sort of the things that go through the mind of somebody who's dying with regrets on Mm -hmm. their mind. And if you don't, then it can be a far more beautiful thing, sort of like what Julia Roberts' character was initially hoping death was like. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's something that the critics would hinge on, is that this film offers no real answers. Yeah, although... Would it be even more ridiculous for them to give a concrete answer in a movie like this? Where they're like, this is absolutely what happens when you go brain dead. Is that why people watch this film? <laughs> to answer that question of life, the universe, and everything? The thing that people have been grappling about and worrying about and fearing and analyzing for the entirety of human fucking existence because death is a great big thing it's the only thing that we can really be sure of and that we can all agree on is something that holds a massive taboo and is something that holds a massive fascination Mm -hmm. across every culture you want to turn to a fucking 1990 psychological thriller for the answer no i'm fine with it not giving an answer because that's not what i went to it for yeah, sobering. Tis. Death is. It tends to be. Yeah. Yeah. Putting the fun in funeral. That's what we do here. Dead air. <laughs> what do we got next for him? Up next will be Vampire Lovers and Basket Case. Yeah. We're going to do Basket Case, I think. I am a basket case. You are a little bit of one. No, I'm not. I'm a vampire lover. Ooh, sexy. And on that note, I'm Les Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.